Welcome to Both Sides TV. I'm super excited today to have my guest that I've talked about doing the show with for almost three years, Jeff Clavier, the founder of SoftTech VC. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited that we have found that time to finally do that show. Yes, we've been talking about it for a while. And I've taken a short hiatus from the show, uh, about four months, because I had to do this thing in between called raising a fund. Which, I know, right? Yeah, which we closed and announced. It was 280. Thank you, 280 awesome. million dollars. And we've both been on the road quite a bit fundraising over the last four or five years. You too raised the new fund. When was your last fund closed? Uh, last fund closed last year. So okay. 2014 was a big year for us. So we celebrated the uh, 150th investment, the 10-year anniversary of SoftTech, yeah. the close of the uh, $85 million fund for and the move of the main office to San Francisco. I was at your 10-year anniversary party. It was mm -hmm. fun. Uh, but what I want to do is rewind. Okay. What many people probably don't know is in 2006, I was in Palo Alto. I was fundraising for my company. I was asking who funds this kind of stuff. And everybody in Palo Alto was telling me, you have to talk to this guy, Jeff Clavier. And there was no category called micro VC. There were nope. no seed funds. Nope. And if I understand correctly, from about 2004, you had your first fund, which was mostly your own money. Is that right? Which was only my money. Fund one, I mean, we called it fund one, even though it was just my angel investments, yeah. uh, which were about 24 companies that uh, I self-funded out of, you know, our, our savings. But what made you did decide to do that professionally and be crazy like that? So um, essentially, let, let's rewind even uh, a sure. bit more. So I, I was an entrepreneur. I did a startup in the financial services market, uh, brought some workstations and trading floors in the late 80s. Company was acquired by Reuters. And it's, it sounds like that's not a New York accent that you have. You no, uh, I was, no, I was born in Paris, Texas. Okay. Um, in, <laughs> I was born in Tours in the yeah. Loire Valley. Yeah. Um, and uh, after the company was acquired, I stayed with the acquirer Reuters uh -huh. for uh -huh. a bunch of years. I was one of their um, sort of uh, main, uh, main sort of tech guys. And in 2000, after going through the, um, the Euro transition, the millennium, and putting in place the 35-hour week, in my shop in France. Yeah. That which was a legal requirement of the Which government. was a legal requirement where you could be sued, uh, not really sued, but fined if ever you were caught working more than 35 hours per week, uh, which disgusted me from ever working from, uh, you know, for anything I, French can, ever can again. Can I stop just to tell one quick story? Is sure. I, I got to meet the French finance minister in the year 2000 about when, when it was mm -hmm. implemented. And it was a group of us and we said, how on earth could you support the idea of a 35-hour work week? And he said, I love the 35-hour work week. I'm like, you're the finance minister and you seriously love the 35-hour work week? He said, you know what? I love it so much, I do two every week. <laughs> I thought it was a good line. Yeah. yeah, the problem is that we were allowed to only do one. Yeah sort of work week. Yeah. And so that really disgusted me from, from uh, staying in France and I decided to sort of leave Reuters and by complete serendipity, I ended up having lunch with a friend of mine who was in the Reuters Greenhouse Fund. Yes. And he said, oh, we're opening the Paris office next week. Why don't you meet the head of the fund, John Taysom, and have tea because he was British. So yeah. you have tea and, and you have beef, beef sandwich with As him. As you do. As you do. And Le roast beef. Exactly. And um, 
he basically said, hey, why don't you join us and become a venture capitalist and okay. move to Palo Alto to be our eyes and ears um, on the ground because they were based in London. And so I came back uh, and told my wife, oh, you know, I found this VC job in Palo Alto. That's awesome. Let's pack and go. And she said, VC, you. <laughs> and a vote of confidence. A vote of confidence. And so I spent four years as, as a partner at the, at the Greenhouse Fund. And I saw the emergence of this new generation of companies in 2003-2004 yeah. that were extremely capital efficient. And you were I living in Palo Alto? I was living in Palo Alto with offices in Palo Alto. And yeah. most of the companies at that time were Palo Alto, Mountain View, Menlo Park, Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, Santa Clara, San Jose for some. Yeah. And we'll um, come back to that later, but that was how it was. But I was then. basically, you know, the valley. Yeah. And... Um, Clearly, there was a funding gap between, because entrepreneurs were looking for, you know, two, three, four hundred K. And VCs were still in the, in the model of funding, you know, these companies with five or ten million. And so I started to see those opportunities. And, um, you know, I thought this was really interesting. And I met a few entrepreneurs and I had this crazy idea of, of going in, doing it on my own, you know, for a few years and see... and. My wife and I sort of agreed. So we had made a little bit of money, but not a ton of money. So we agreed to take 250K of our savings and that I would spend a year not working, but trying to do this thing and meet entrepreneurs and spend time and figure out whether there was a there there. And but you had this cozy VC job with a big company like Reuters and... Was yeah, it, but corporate VC, to... corporate VC is not real VC. Sorry, okay. sorry about yeah. that to my corporate VC friends. But um, and it was not an early stage sort of practice. It was more sort of a Series B. And so you up. wanted to do what you wanted to do. Yeah, and which in is supporting entrepreneurs. You started doing that. Yep. And so you would write back then average check size at what? 25, 50K, uh, because it was out of a 250K pool mm -hmm. that was going to last for, you know, a year, year and, and a half. And who were your co-investors in those kind of deals? At the time, so, um, so obviously Ron Conway yeah. was still there. And Ron uh, sort of brought a few of his friends who were not uh, tech they were tech investors, but they were not tech practitioners. Mm -hmm. And they were just investing on the basis of what Ron, Ron was doing. Reid Hoffman, uh, you know, started investing quite, quite a bit at that time. I met Josh Koppelman when he was still investing out of, you know, his own, uh, his own sort yeah, of... So like the early, the, the early guys, for those who don't know, because there's now must be 80 or 100 at least seed funds. And there's Make it 150. 150. But back in the day, it was Jeff Clavier on his personal dollar... It was Josh Koppelman originally, mostly on his personal dollar. And then introducing the, uh, the vintage funds for first round, yes. And then uh, Phil Black, mostly on his own dollar from my memory. He had uh, either his own money or a small fund. And that eventually he teamed up with John Callahan to create True Ventures. Yes. Um, who else? Well, there's almost so 2004. So I don't remember um, when Maple sort of came, but I think yeah, it's Frank around that Maples. time. Um, and uh, who else? Um, there were essentially about 10, 12, 20 sort of angels who were you know coming and going and, and participating to those rounds. And believe it or not, it was actually hard to put together a 250k or 300k round because it took you know a bunch of 25k you know checks. And at the time. Every now and then I would write, you know, the first check of, for a company and it would be sort of the only investor. 
hoping that I would be able to convince other people because you're really lonely when, yeah. there's, when you put 25K <laughs> in yeah, a company and, for sure. and that's it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, we did that a few times. Um, and I think I was lucky to have a few companies that were A, good, B, that, you know, made it sort of pretty quickly to the next round or got acquired uh, right. sort of quickly. Truvio, which was one of my first real sort of outcomes, I invested in January of 2015, uh, put 25K in there. 2015? Uh, two th sorry, 2005. Yeah. Um, did uh, sort of, you know, th there was a million dollar round at 2.5 per if I recall. And the company was acquired by AOL within less than 11 months. So in uh, at the beginning of December of 2005. And that was a 17x return yeah. in, you know, 11 months. And it's not so much of the return or whatever in the 11 month, it was, you know, I actually brought back on that outcome more than the 250K that we had uh, sort phenomenal. of budgeted. And without that deal, and the funny thing is, the only reason why I actually got to invest mm -hmm. in, that, in that round wasn't because I was an awesome sort of Android investor who could support companies or whatever. It was because my beloved wife worked with this, the wife of the CTO uh, supporting the um, lunch program at school. And because they were friends, she told her husband, yeah, you know, Jeff in. So you owe it all to your wife? Of course. <laughs> that, uh, that fund did pretty well. Yep. From, from what I understand. Um, and that encouraged you to raise an institutional. So what fund. happened? So yeah, let, let's sort of uh, fast forward a little yeah. bit. So that, that was in 2005. So there was a bunch of, of really sort of interesting uh, opportunities which I invested in. And, you know, in 2006, there was this piece in Business 2.0, mm -hmm. which was called, you know, um, here come the super angels or mm -hmm. here are the super angels. And here you had David Hornick, uh, Fred Wilson, uh, you had Reed, you had, you know, uh, Josh. And there was, you know, 12 guys who were totally legit and me. Right. And okay. it was sort of Kind of but interesting to be on the picture. How are they calling David Hornick or Fred Wilson super angels? Because it was sort of the guys who were really sort of funding Web 2.0. And for okay. some reason, they sort of said, here is the picture of the super angels. And then some of the people were angels and some of the people were actually okay. EVCs. Gotcha. But for the first time, there was this category of super angels. And there mm -hmm. were, you know, the angels with bigger wings because we were making more investments right. and, and being involved in more uh, sort of opportunities. And... When we started to sort of see the transition from business angel to actual VCs by some of us, those funds became the super angel funds, which mm -hmm. doesn't mean you know much because by definition, if you're managing other people's money, you're no longer an angel. Yes. But um, the first cohort of super angel funds sort of happened at the end of 2006 or 2007. And I was approached um, at the time by Tim Chang mm -hmm. when he was at Norwest. And he said, yeah. hey, why don't you raise a fund? And if ever you were raising a fund, we'd be interested in being an LP. Right. And, you know, to me, the whole angel thing was really working well. I and, and a VC being an LP. So in a way, that's a VC fund saying you're playing earlier in the market than we play. We probably don't have the skills or even the desire to play at that level. But if we staked you, then maybe we'd have an inside track yep. on some interesting deals. That was that was sort of the, the strategy. Did, did they fund you? They actually became the, uh, they offered to be one of the anchor LPs mm -hmm. for fund. So fund two was a $15 million fund. 
Um, we had the discussion with Tim at uh, the end of May of 2007, and you know, I basically raised that fund very, very quickly. We closed the fund in um, August of 2007, so you know, within a few weeks, literally, the fund and was sort of I, put I, together. I, I can't emphasize this enough for anyone who wasn't around. Raising a $15 million fund was like heresy. It's like, mm -hmm. who would raise a $15 million fund? I used to talk to LPs and they would say like, 15 million is my minimum commitment yes. and I can only be 10% of a fund. Like, these guys will never survive. Which is why I think I was lucky that a VC was one of the anchor LPs and then a small um, sort of fund of fund uh, did the rest of, of the round and then we brought a, a few sort of angel investors, friends, uh, to whom I said, I don't know what I'm doing. So, you know, I'm only taking sort of 100K from you guys because if I lose 100K from you, you will still be friends. Right, right. right. Um, and, uh, it's good to have friends who can lose 100K, right? I know, right? <clears throat> no, I, I, was, I was very fortunate. Yeah. And so um, we announced Fund 2 at TechCrunch 40 mm -hmm. in, um, in September of 2007 and exactly what you described was the reaction. It's like, what the hell yeah. is this thing? $15 million funds don't mean anything. It's going to do 60 investments. That was the portfolio construction and, strategy. And if I'm not mistaken, that is the TechCrunch that was won by Mint. Yes, I actually announced the, um, the fund with a Mint shirt, yeah. which was like, hey, vote for Mint, vote for Mint. And Mint won, and you paid off Arrington, I guess, so that Mint would win. We didn't pay off Arrington. Yeah. Mint won because it was the best product. <laughs> I'm um, just kidding. And I was an, investor, an early investor in Mint as well. Yeah, and so Mint was a great, like, announced as a $170 million exit, although yep. we both know that wasn't the real price. Mm -hmm. I don't know why they didn't announce the real price. But um, that was a great return and yep. quick, and so you were off to the races. Off to the races. And so, you know, Fund 2 was this sort of experiment which I was running uh, where, you know, there was no real sort of framework or template for a $15 million fund at the time, so I had to make one up. Um, I was very, you know, lucky that uh, Josh Koppelman and John Callahan uh, were really sort of close friends, Brad Feld as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so those three were really my mentors and helped me sort of think through the portfolio construction, the reserves mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. But it was really sort of an experiment. Mm -hmm. And I ran it for three years on my own. So from 2004 to 2010, I invested, you know, in 90 companies, 9-0, on my own. 90. Nine, yep, that's, that's a lot. Um, but the premise was, I'm not sure I know what I'm doing and therefore, you know, if I had to change my mind or whatever, it's easier than change an entire organization. Mm -hmm. So let's see where this goes. And by the time I had invested Fund2, and so Fund2 has uh, Eventbrite, has Fitbit, has SendGrid, has a bunch of, of really sort of interesting companies, um, I was clear that there was actually a real micro VC category. Mm -hmm. And that's when I decided to partner up and bring my partner Charles on board. Then we uh, brought in sort of um, Stephanie. And so there's three of us today um, at, uh, at Softech and we raised a much bigger fund, 55. So 3X, you know, fund mm -hmm. two obviously compared to our friends in the industry is still micro, but with a premise that we would write larger checks. Sorry, and we'd what have year reserves. did you raise that? So that was 2010. Okay. Now, you've mentioned reserves twice, and you and I both know what reserves are, but there's a lot of people who yep. watch the show who don't. So, you know, why don't you just take us through how reserves work in a venture fund and how you think about reserves? Sure. So, 
typically a fund will invest at a certain sort of point in the financing history of a, of a company. We invest at seed, which is these days defined as the first institutional check, which can be anywhere from half a million to four or five million. The seed definition has yeah. broadened quite yes. a bit. Uh, when I started, it was the first you know, half million to million dollar check. And so you get a certain percentage of ownership uh, with your initial check. And the idea is that over time, the company is going to raise more money at you know, at different sort of valuations. And the idea is that you try and maintain your ownership as much as possible. Because mm-hmm. if, you, uh, if you get you know, 5% of the company when you invest at seed, and then the company uh, you know, raises to make the numbers work, 2 million at um, 10 posts. So $8 million pre, $10 million post, 20% dilution. If you don't invest more in the company, your 5% is going to become 4% mm-hmm. and, and so on and so forth. So you're going to decrease your ownership over time. And you want to participate with your reserves mm-hmm. and deploy them. And that investment is usually called the pro rata investment. The pro rata investment. And so as a fund, you may have, let's make it up, a $100 million fund. And let's say, well, let me call it a $90 million fund. Mm-hmm. And you're going to invest perhaps $45 million in primary investments. Yep. And let's say you have a three-year pace. So you might do $15 million a year for three years, Yes. $45 million total. And then you reserve $45 million to follow on in your best deals. Yes. And so that's primary and reserves. And that's kind of how VC funds are structured. And the idea is to figure out, you know, how much of your reserves you're going to put in a Series A and then a Series B and whether Series C is you're still participating and so on and so forth. And so we've tried different sort of uh, reserve models. And in Fund 4, the most recent, so it's $85 million and 35 will be used for the initial sort of investments, mm-hmm. and then we'll reserve 50. Okay. So almost a dollar invested leads to $2 reserved. Wow. That's big. Yep. Um, and we need it. Yeah. That's, the way, that's the way it works. So at some point in time, the market started to shift. A lot of new entrants into the seed category, some very successful, some early days we'll see. And the market itself shifted where it was kind of sleepy when you started, most of it funded around Silicon Valley. The whole market seems to have shifted to, North, to San Francisco. Yes. I mean, talk about that shift. Sure. Uh, well, there, was, there were a couple of, of phases. One is um, there was the New York phase. Mm-hmm. So remember, like three, four years ago, mm-hmm. you had a feeling that every, any, any sort of flight that you would uh, take from SFO or San Jose to mm-hmm. New York would have a bunch of VCs and mm-hmm. all the VCs were looking at opening offices in New York and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And that has sort of, uh, sort dissipated. of stopped. It's dissipated. Uh, we're still very active in, in New York. We assume that 10% of the portfolio will be in New York for mm-hmm. any fund. Mm-hmm. Um, but... There's, there isn't sort of the level of activity that uh, we used to see. And then over the past two, three, four years, um, we started seeing just an influx of uh, deal flow coming from San Francisco where a bunch of younger founders were just uh, setting up shop in the city as opposed to you know, living in the city and commuting down to Palo Alto, Menlo mm-hmm. Park, Mountain View, Sunnyvale, Santa Clara, and so on and so forth. And so two years ago, Two and a half years ago, we started to uh, hang out at Founders Den, which is mm-hmm. one of the great co-working spaces in San Francisco, because we need you know an office to actually meet those entrepreneurs, because yeah. they hate you when you actually have them schlep down to, uh, down to um, uh, Palo Alto. M- many of them don't have cars. They don't have cars, and you know if you have to go from um, San- to Sand Hill from Palo Alto's train station, 
you know, before Uber, it really yeah. sucked. Yeah. So we started to spend time in San Francisco and we spent more time in San Francisco. And, and finally, you know, we have opened this, this great office we have now on 2nd and Bryant in the core of SOMA. And over the past couple of years, 75% of the investments we've made are in San Francisco. Wow. 75%. Complete shift. Complete shift. And it seems like a number of funds have either moved to San Francisco or set up offices in San Francisco. You wouldn't believe how many friends have come to visit me in my office saying, we heard your office is awesome. We're thinking about opening a San Francisco office. Can we come and visit? And so I I show them the office. So it's it's half half and half. Half is traditional sort of uh, VC type offices with everyone having their office and conference rooms and everything. And then half is open space where we can reassemble you know, uh, our tables and our chairs to do like an even space to do a, a mini seminar, to do a mini conference. And we, I'm very proud of having mm. two wine fridges. In the <laughs> Not one, two. Yeah. Uh, does that mean like one is red and one is white or? Uh, it means that we have plenty of capacity. <laughs> <laughs> it means that you're very French. Because I think in our new office, you know, we're building our offices yes. now. But we have a beer keg because we're Americans. So. We, we had discussions around the beer keg, uh, the beer keg loss to the second uh, one fridge. As it, as it happens. Why do you suppose there's less emphasis on New York? Is it because San Francisco has just become so active? So why deal with the travel? Or it, it has something fundamentally changed in New York in your experience? It's interesting. I think that there, were, there was a, um, uh, a lot of hyperactivity in New York with uh, a lot of really interesting sort of iconic startups, you know, Etsy, Foursquare, you know, sort of Guild, all sort of getting going. And there was this feeling that New York was the next, the next big, you know, next big thing. And I think that up until recently, obviously Tumblr sort of exited at 1.1 billion to Yahoo. Um, but there is a feeling that New York still has to prove itself in mm-hmm. terms of an ecosystem that can really groom you know, a uh, number of startups on a repetitive basis. And so we're happy to um, uh, look for opportunities there. And uh, my colleague Steph spends, you know, roughly a week, every six weeks there to uh, meet our portfolio companies. We have about 10 portfolio companies there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're very comfortable investing in New York. And we never think about, oh, my God, it's a New York company. What do we need to do special because mm-hmm. it's in New York? Um, however, we just haven't seen, you know, more than, a couple of interesting companies per year for mm-hmm. us to invest in, and we never asked ourselves, should we have a New York office? Right. Um, so the market's changed a lot. Um, we know there's AngelList now, yep. so a lot more people are able to raise through syndicates. There's a lot more angels themselves who just have money. Sure. From not just like in the old days, it was Google money, but now you have Google money, Facebook money, Twitter money, LinkedIn money, LinkedIn money. So there's a lot more money going around. Um, what has changed, do you think, in startup land, particularly in the Bay Area? Uh, I imagine it's really hard to get talent. I imagine there's wage inflation. I imagine there's office inflation, but more capital available to raise at probably higher prices. Uh, there's been the emergence of incubators, Y Combinator, yep. accelerators, whatever they like to be called. Um, how's life changed, and, 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 and how should founders think about operating now what what words of wisdom would you have so i think that and all everything you mentioned is true and i would say there's even one more sort of change in the ecosystem is the emergence of pre-seed funds yeah so people would invest before us and 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 we'll talk about that as well 
So let, let's just try and, and summarize. Um, there's a, um, an overflow of capital available. Mm -hmm. um, and so the supply demand balance is now in balance where there is way more capital than there are ideas. Mm -hmm. So, and, and just to put things in, in perspective, I think there's something like 150 micro VC funds that have raised something like 3.5 billion uh, to invest in the space, yeah. to which you will add all the angel activity, angel lists, uh, all the crowdfunding platforms and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So, the but, issue for entrepreneurs now yeah. is not capital. But, capital but, the, is, but, the, but the argument that people would make is that capital is now a pure commodity and therefore shouldn't I just take capital from any source because it's a commodity? How I, was you, getting, I was getting there. Yeah. So, but I hear that a ca lot. Capital is truly a commodity and you can pretty much source it you know, from several different you know, sources, however you sort of want to play it. The old school VCs that you and I sort of represent mm -hmm. will say, well, yes, capital is a commodity. We need to, to bring the commodity, you know, to, uh, to actually get the company funded and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, what matters is how strong the syndicate that you're going to be building is and how thoughtful you were in, in constructing it, mm -hmm. bringing people who have, you know, this notion of founder market fit. Mm -hmm. There's also sort of investor market fit. And mm -hmm. so if you're building, you know, a connected device, if you're building a SaaS company, if you're building a, uh, a B2B marketplace, mm -hmm. go and seek entrepreneurs, uh, sorry, investors that have worked with entrepreneurs in the past in those categories and have right. built a track record and a reputation for two reasons. One is it's like they will help you sort of put the training wheels on the startup and they will sort of help you guide you with true data and mm -hmm. and ratios and execution sort of uh, examples uh, that they saw in previous companies. But also the fact that you know they're those those investors are involved in your company and they have the track record of other successes will matter to the next round of financing because mm -hmm. at the end of the day. There is so much money investing in uh, so many sort of companies that there is sort of a hurdle uh, that changes over time and has changed over time in terms of how hard it is to raise a Series A and a Series B. Mm -hmm. And you want the right people to help you, guide you, and plot that trajectory of what it takes to raise a and Series A and Series B. What I think people wouldn't appreciate is people like you, and correct me if you think I'm wrong in this, but. <clears throat> I view you almost as a shepherd guiding early stage companies to the A round. And your job is to help them assemble the right team, launch the right product, package the company from a marketing perspective, introduce them to the right A round investors, and then a slow transition to those A round investors playing a more active role. And you'll still have a relationship, but then you're on to your next set mm -hmm. of seed deals and then they're with trusted A investors. And so you really occupy that stage of the market and, and you wanna be the best in that stage, not the best in downstream. How do you do M&A? How do you do an IPO? Is that? Yep, no, I think it's, it's uh, I would add, you know, the day-to-day -day execution and the strategy that actually gets you to build a big company because yeah. the, the challenge we have to, um, to overcome, to get our companies to raise a Series A. Uh, and we've raised something like 25 in the last 12 months. So, you know, we've, we've been active in that, um, in that space. Um, is a mix of building the right team, building the right product, proving the market opportunity that is actually worthy of a Series A and then a Series B. Because as you know, our friends will only sort of invest in something that can be a billion dollar outcome sure. or more. Yeah. Um, and figuring out the, the tactics, so the day-to-day -day 
you know, sort of uh, how do you solve problem X, Y, Z, and the strategy of actually what what sort of gets you there. But I like the um, the shepherd uh, sort of notion, which which we really sort of try and play alongside the rest of the syndicate, and that's why our sort of favorite investments are when the syndicate is kind of uh, you know to be built, and we can really bring in very very strong co investors. From, from our sort of previous companies to figure out you know, who's really good at this type of founder, mm -hmm. this type of product, this type of market. Okay. And then, you know, it's not that we'll give the keys to the Series A guy, uh, but if we do our job right, we'll attract the best possible sort of partner and firm for a given opportunity, and then they will do their thing, and we'll then figure out how to complement them. We'll, we might stay on the board for a year or two, we might leave the board after six months, it mm -hmm. will be sort of discussion with the founders and the new, the new investor. But yeah, we're sort of this, this factory, uh, this conveyor belt of companies that we sort of take at seed and we bring to A and to B. With age comes wisdom, which means you and, and I should be yeah. wise. Yes. <laughs> And, and gray hair. And gray hair. Um, you know, I like to think, Jeff, that if the markets from 2009 to 2014, the tech markets have only gone in one direction. Yep. So if the markets only move in one direction, which we know empirically isn't going to be the case, and if your company performs out of the box from day one and you become an overnight success, then probably capital is a commodity and any amount of success that you're having that's extraordinary and any amount of market success, if those are correlated for a six, seven, eight, nine year period of time, capital is a commodity. But the reality is markets run in seven to eight year cycles. Yep. And the reality is even the best companies go through existential crises or if not quite existential, you know, not picking on anyone, but let's say like Foursquare where there's been management changes, yep. Etsy where there's been management changes, and these are still great companies, yep. I hope have great outcomes. But at each stage, I'm sure there were investors helping guide them through yep. that process. So that's like how I see it. Like what advice do you have for today's, you know, because a lot of people just think, let me just get this round really quickly done on AngelList, I'll be done and I don't have to talk to investors. I'm, I'm old school, in, and I will sort of always favor the, um, the wise investor who will pay attention and, and really sort of attach his success or her success to mine, mm -hmm. as opposed to the um, super easy source of capital that doesn't really sort of care about me more than, you know, the 50 or 100 other sort of companies they're investing in. And it's so hard to execute, to become successful, to hire the right people, because as you said, you know, it's so much more expensive now to find uh, office space in San Francisco to hire, to hire engineers, to hire salespeople, marketing people, to figure out, you know, like capital efficiency is all related. It's still cheaper than it used to be, but it's two or three X more expensive than it used to be as well, right? So your $2 million round now still buys you, you know, 18 months of runway. Whereas uh, three, four years ago, a million dollar round would have bought you. Right. You know, so you need to raise more money because it's more expensive. It costs more to build. And so our answer to that is, you know, <clears throat> we sort of saw this trend and that's why we raised a larger fund so that, you know, we actually want to buy seven to 10% of the companies that mm -hmm. we invest in. Mm -hmm. And we never think about the dollar amount per se, because for us with a large $85 million fund, whether it costs us, you know, 
750k or a million to get that 10% ownership. I want to talk about, and you'll forgive me for bringing it up, Fab. Sure. Um, and I don't want to say bad things about Fab, but I want to see what we but can... But still, you're going to do it. <laughs> no, I want to... I, I Look, if I talk about any company that didn't end up a huge success, I could be construed as being negative. My, my real objective is to learn from it. Sure, sure, of course. So you funded originally a gay social networking yes. company, and that was called Fabulous. It was called Fabulous, yeah. Fabulous. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't work, and they pivoted into Fab, the retailer, e-commerce retailer. Yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was the darling company for at least two years. For at least two years, yeah. yeah. And they attracted a tremendous amount of venture capital. They spent a tremendous amount of venture capital. For the most part, that venture capital has been wasted. Uh, they sold the assets, I think, in the end, or sold some of the assets. So there is a rumor that they sold there in the process of selling the assets to PCH International, if you believe the, the if press. If you believe the press. Uh, but nonetheless, it doesn't appear like it's going to be a billion-dollar-plus company. What lessons can you draw from that? What what so, should what what lessons should entrepreneurs take away from that? Yeah, so I think you know a couple of thoughts. Uh, so we invested in Fab in the first couple of million dollars, and we founded Fabulous. Uh, and you know they launched the, the the sort of gay social network. Um, and Jason Goldberg, the CEO, uh, decided that you know it was good but not great, and they were not you know, really sort of based on the early numbers and early trends of the business, they were not going to build, you know, the kind of company that he was interested in. And so they talked about, you know, shutting down Fab, returning the money to investors, or they had tried this sort of flash sale mm -hmm. of, a, I don't remember what kind of item, and just had worked fantastically well. Mm -hmm. And they looked at the numbers, and that was very exciting. And so they went to the board and they said, and we're not on the board, we're just an investor. And flash sales had been hot for a while. You had Gilt Group, yep. Hot Look, Rue La La, a series of And them. a bunch of others, you know, and Bon Privé. And, bon Privé, and, well, Bon Privé goes back yep. a long way from France. Yes. Um, and so they said we can either shut down or we can sort of uh, try and launch this flash sale, flash sales site for everyday design that me and Bradford, uh, Jason and Bradford, mm -hmm. uh, were very Bradford sort of, was the co-founder, co uh, who has a very keen eye for design. He's, mm -hmm. he's an exceptional sort of designer. And the board said, yeah, you know, it's, we're not in the business of getting our money back uh, or whatever is left of the money back. So let's launch, let's launch sort of fab.com. So they shut down Fabulous, uh, relaunch Fab. And the early days of Fab sales were nothing short of absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. So they were they they went from one to ten to hundred million dollar in GMV in in just a, a matter of a and few GMV months. being gross merchandise value yes yeah. um, and so to uh, to power those that that those that growth uh, they raised you know a bit more sort of money on the on the note. Uh, uh, then they raised a, a Series A from Menlo, and then they raised a Series B from Hunterson Hall. It's at you know increasing valuations and everything, and the more money they had, the more money they spent. But I think that up until then, there was nothing which was completely crazy. Mm -hmm. And then for me, the first time that Fab really sort of took a major risk was to go after uh, Casa Conda, which, which was um, a website, a copycat of, of Fab, that um, the Sumner brothers, the Sumner brothers yeah. had spun out yeah. and, and launched. 
and basically they were going after Fab copying, I mean, literally copying the website. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I don't know whether it was the board, the management team, or both that said, let's go and, and preempt any, any effort that the, uh, the Summer Brothers uh, are doing by buying ourselves a, a German knockoff uh, of Fab and launch it as so Fab I, Europe. I want to stop and we'll continue on the story, but this is the teachable moment of probably many, but I funded a company in New York called Makespace. Yes. And we've had great initial success and the Somner brothers copied us. Mm -hmm. Not just them, but there's a copycat in London, there's a copycat in Hong Kong, literally down to stealing our images, yep. laying out the pages the same way. So I sat down with Sam Rosen, and you'll appreciate this, our COO is David Lapter, yes. who was the CFO at Fab. So he was, he's been there. Yeah, and, and, and a dear friend of mine for many, many years, he was the CFO of my startup. So a dear friend of mine for many years, and, and, and Sam said, well, what do we do? And I said, you do nothing. If we build an amazing company in the US, we earn the right to go international. We earn the right to then go try to take on the copycats. If we take on the copycats and we haven't built a great company in the US, like shame on us. Mm -hmm. And you really have to stay focused on your core market. And I know markets are global and I know there are some exceptional people who can do multiple markets at the same time. But it really can be a distraction if you're not multilingual, yeah. can't deal with multiple laws, multiple currencies, employment laws, and travel. So, and talk about sourcing, yeah. sourcing of products, inventory in two different places. So I think that for me, the first, the first mistake, uh, and it's easy, you know, hindsight 2020, the first mistake was to go after the copycats and yeah. just not do what you just did, which is just focus on the US, focus on building, you know, sort of the sourcing engine, on building the user acquisition engine and getting the economics right. And they didn't launch a website and just try to head fake or put a toe in the water, they bought companies. Yeah. And so that meant they took on a huge burn rate and I think that became part of the problem, I guess. And so, you know, because they were still very successful, uh, they managed to raise yet another <coughs> round, 150 million if I recall, but the burn rates were just shocking. I, I, at some point I said, well, uh, Fab is, is burning a Series A per month, uh, <laughs> which actually I heard then made it to the, to the, um, yeah. to the to a board meeting. And so, you know, I think I'm not, I mean, there these, is... These days it's only a Series C per month. So. I know, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, Jason has made mistakes, the board has made mistakes. I think it's, it's easy to sort yeah, of point I'm not to even, people. I'm not even trying but, to point fingers, but I, I will say this. I think they're all related. And what I wanted to peel back the onion on is when you have capital constraints, and this will sound like, you know, when you're a VC, you see the world this way, but I'm not going to fund the overwhelming majority of these companies that watch this video. So I just want people to realize that in a way, capital constraints force focus. Yep. They force creativity. And in a way, they force innovation. And they force you to ask harder questions about viability of your concept, of your gross margins, and other things. Sometimes having too much capital, it papers over the underlying problems of the company. And I really think it was the capital because everything else to me is a symptom of having too much capital. Having too much capital and basically trying to um, grow too fast an infrastructure which wasn't you know, properly sort of laid out and where the contribution margin was just not the focus whatsoever. And so they were essentially digging their own hole as they were sort of selling more products. And so net net, you know, uh, they they sort of slowed. So they raised 
335 million or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and as they sort of raised this uh, massive amount, which was still not enough for them to be fully funded, mm -hmm. uh, it would have needed another you know, 170 on 80 or whatever. Um, Jason sort of implemented a cost-cutting, um, he cut the organization in, in you know, a third or fourth or whatever, and eventually uh, moved the company's focus towards furniture. And so mm -hmm. now we have HEM, which is another website, and it's run from Berlin. And, you know, we'll see what happens with, with HEM, but it's really sort of the next chapter for FAB. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really sort of uh, a lesson for entrepreneurs that you could be sort of the darling, you know, in the press and, and everywhere. But if ever your economics and, and, you know, you just haven't built a real foundation that you can scale on. So scaling too fast, raising money too quickly can be a deadly. And more problems with overcapitalizing are you set investor expectations because if they're giving you a huge round, their expectation is that you're going to grow faster, mm -hmm. which forces you to try to get the growth maybe more artificially than you otherwise are ready to grow at. When you raise the big rounds and then you do a lot of press, as Fab did, and they started doing TV-based advertising, also, part of the problem is you raise the market's expectation. Mm -hmm. So a normal company that isn't overcapitalized, that isn't as public, probably goes through the same journey where, gosh, our gross margin isn't quite right or our clients aren't biting here. Let's cut back 20% of our staff. Let's figure it out. But it's also public when you're that company. And so I think there's a lesson I think there as well. Yeah, I think it's there, there's the public aspect, but there's also the fact that, you know, you can't sort of buy your way into growth. Mm -hmm. And if you try and grow too fast before your foundation has been properly laid out, you will eventually sort of pay for it. And, you know, you will sort of crack from all over the place. And I think well-run companies that, you know, continue scaling had to rebuild their infrastructure over time. And there's a lot of, you know, we talk about technical debt, uh, but there might be sort of infrastructure debt as well that you have to pay at some point. Yeah. Um, okay, so fast forward, it's 2015. Yep. What's changed in 2015? We've now gone through the, the fab years, flash sales, uh, e-commerce was a big focus in the market, a lot of capital available. I don't see too many e-commerce companies, too many ad tech companies getting funded these days. What is interesting? So, um Yes, we, we've basically uh, stopped doing anything sort of branded commerce or e-commerce or whatever. We still do marketplaces, though. Uh, okay. We love the marketplace sort of concept. We, we're just better at, at scaling those. Um, it's actually very, very you know, broad if you look at the diversity of things that we see on a daily basis. So we see um, you know, anywhere from 450 to 750 opportunities a quarter, and we invest in four. Mm -hmm. So the challenge for us is to figure out whether this you know SaaS opportunity and this marketplace and this sort of crazy virtual reality augmented reality you know kind of opportunity which one is sort of a best fit for us um, what's new um, in terms of so Bitcoin used to be like super hot and now mm -hmm. I would say you know uh, it's it's less interesting uh, people are sort of trying to see what the first cohort of Bitcoin investments sort of actually generate in terms of outcomes mm -hmm. and I think it's too early for that um, drones, mm -hmm. definitely very hot. Drone infrastructure uh, or actual sort of drone companies. And um, do you have any investments in either of those, Bitcoin or drones? So Bitcoin, we haven't done anything in Bitcoin. We haven't done anything in the blockchain, which is the underlying mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure. Uh, 
we're open to blockchain type investments. We just haven't seen something that that was a, a good fit for us. We were inspired by the potential, and we believe that it was actually uh, gonna happen. Maybe um, drone. We are investors in Drone Deploy, uh, which has the first internet-enabled flight control system for drones, where you can literally fly your drone from your iPhone. Mm -hmm. um, and it's there's an automation aspect where you can just tell the drone where to go and it will just go on its own. Mm -hmm. um, but to some extent, from what I understand, that's where the FAA is starting to try to crack mm -hmm. down a little bit, that they really want to have line of sight to yes. make sure that people aren't putting out drones that aren't sort of controlled yeah. in a way. And you know, it will take years for the, uh, for the market to really materialize. But the good news is we now have a set of regulations where we can fly the damn things, yeah. as opposed to having a, you know, you can't fly drones, yeah. period. Uh, which was the, the the position up until like a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've looked at virtual reality, augmented reality, artificial intelligence, uh, robots, but we haven't done sort of in, any uh, sort of investments. And so for us, the um, the portfolio construction that we have is roughly fifty percent SaaS. So whether it's horizontal infrastructure like an RG matrix or SendGrade, vertical uh, SaaS like a farm around, which is a SaaS ERP for the farming world. So mm -hmm. we, we actually believe that Ag is a, is a great opportunity. That's uh, a European space. company, is it's it? A, yes, great okay. memory. So it's, it, um, it came from Croatia and yeah. it's actually uh, based in the US now. Okay. Uh, mobile SaaS, things like Kahuna, which is marketo mm -hmm. for mobile, doing extremely well. So this is sort of 50% of the portfolio. And, those are, you know, if you pick the right team in the right with the right product in the right segment, then the blueprint of what it takes to actually raise a series A is, I wouldn't say it's easy, it's never easy, but it's pretty predictable. Okay. Um, then we do sort of marketplaces, B2C or B2B, uh, very comfortable with that. Um, on the consumer side, uh, we do a lot of uh, devices. So I was a uh, seed investor in Fitbit, then in August, we've done Coin, we've done a couple of uh, really interesting uh, consumer healthcare device. One with you guys mm -hmm. at Six Sensor Labs. We're yeah. super excited about As are we. A, investing with you and investing with Shireen, who's an awesome CEO. Phenomenal, yeah. So we just done, say real quickly what that company does. So um, Six Sensor Labs is a, um, a food allergen detector. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a company which has two interesting challenges. One is mechanical engineering and figuring out the device size and shape that will allow you to hold a VAL, which, has a, um, uh, which contains an antibody mm -hmm. that will detect um, gluten, lactose, and eventually peanuts mm -hmm. or, or nuts at a you know, one part per million mm -hmm. uh, sort of dose. I think it's 20 parts per million. They want to go to one part per million. Really? Yes. Okay. So, and, and the idea is, you know, you're eating, you want to see whether there is gluten in something, you sort of use the valve um, and, and sort of crunch a little bit of the food, shake it, put in the device within two minutes. Yeah, and what, you. you know, what maybe people don't realize is I think it's about three million people in the U.S. have celiac disease. Yes. Um, I happen to have had an aunt with celiac disease and they just, they can't have any gluten. Yep. And then if you add gluten intolerance, if you add people who want to have low gluten lifestyles, obviously it expands the market greatly. Yeah. And it's you know really a razor razor blade model where every vial will be you know something that you purchase. Um, so very excited about the opportunity. And you know we stay away from the FDA. So mm -hmm. uh, both Halo Neuroscience and uh, Sync Sensor Labs won't be sort of um, FDA uh, subject right. to FDA mm -hmm. approval. And so you know it's up to us to re release the product, market it, and and, and off we go. 
So we'll do a few of those uh, in the consumer sort of space. Uh, actually, consumer healthcare is one of the big wedges for us in, mm -hmm. uh, in Fund4. We believe that finally this $4 trillion spending in 2015 will be an opportunity to build interesting startups. Uh, we haven't done anything on the B2B side, but we're really excited about the B2C side. Uh, we'll do a bit well, of four trillion is probably an exaggerated number, right? Because no, that it's, it's actually the what's included in four trillion. It must include doctor spend. It yeah, must it's, include... it's the overall spending in yeah. healthcare so... in the U.S. in 2015 will be four trillion dollars this year. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I gave a uh, I don't a doubt that. The web, I, I don't uh, doubt that, this. but that's not really a total addressable market, right? Because it's a total spend. Okay. So overall, if you look a at a sub segment of that, is still a very large number. It's just a gigantic market opportunity. And I think that sensors and the ability to communicate with your uh, sort of doctors and to have on-demand services like Uber for psychiatrists, we have that one, it's mm -hmm. called Lantern, um, is actually, <clears throat> it's real. And it might take a few years to really sort of materialize as a mass market opportunity. But we believe that building those companies now okay. is a real uh, And what about, like, obviously you were in Fitbit, so the market innovator in hardware for wellness and trackers yeah, yeah. and mm -hmm. and uh now that market just seemed from watches to health trackers to everything else seems so saturated a are you still looking in that category and what would be a standout like how would you even decide and b how should founders feel about entering that market should they go into a market that's going to have so many dollars and so much competition so because we're in Fitbit, uh, which is the market leader, I mean, uh, NPD data uh, over Christmas or Q1 sort of showed that um, for four trackers sold in the US, three were Fitbits. Um, so it's, it's sort of, you know, game over from that standpoint. Um, I wouldn't sort of advise people to sort of go and compete with them directly because they have so much sort of market power and pool that it's very difficult. Let's to just say to even that. Nike failed. Even Nike failed. And it's not... They tried, they spent a lot of money on marketing and product development, but it just failed and decided to pull out because they were only 8% um, of the market. Mm -hmm. So 75% is Fitbit, 8% was Nike. However, I think that lifestyle, exercise, uh, wellness, and the ability to figure out what is the next sort of level of interaction with your doctors and a community of people sort of um, helping you, support you. Uh, mental health is a sort of genuine issue in the US and mm -hmm. there's very little which has been done in that space. So I think there's a bunch of white spaces that you can find in consumer healthcare, which we're very excited about. And, you know, we're actually looking actively to, um, to invest. Don't in. you think mental health is an area that VC should pay more attention to in terms of our entrepreneurs and our investment? I feel like if there's a criticism I have of our industry is we focus all on the raw technical prowess and power of teams and not enough on well-being of mental state of entrepreneurs. Yep, I, I mean, it's a very stressful industry with a lot of, uh, you know, highly volatile people in highly volatile situations and founder fighting and stuff like that. It feels like we as an industry are not as good as we could be there. Well, I think 
you know, th that sort of comes back a little bit to what I was talking about in terms of value add and people mm -hmm. who care and because mm -hmm. that's what you and I do as well. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, we take those calls at 11 p.m. at night or, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning mm -hmm. or whatever and people don't feel, you know, super well because there's there's a problem and they're not sure that the fundraising is going to, you know, happen. They might sort of actually blow up or whatever. And so there's a, there's a lot of... Um, <clears throat> You know, I talked about twinning wheels, but also making sure that the team is is actually able to um, uh, go through those challenges as unarmed as possible. And that's the thing that's really not talked about, Jeff. Like because no one writes blog posts on. I always say this on founders fighting or mm -hmm. on founder depression or on founder problems with alcohol or Adderall or mm -hmm. whatever other problems they have, and yet it's very real and we deal with it on yeah. a regular basis. Um, I see it even more problematic after your A round and your B round because now you're at company sizes that could be 60, 80, 100 people. And we're seeing some of this emerge with uh, sexism charges yep. or sexual harassment charges or, you know. We're in the middle of the climate break and slow suit right yeah, now. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I didn't want to go there so much from a VC standpoint, but we see it inside of companies. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there's been some high profile cases. Uh, I think one was GitHub had some issues. Yep. I know Tinder had some issues. But I guess I'm just saying like at that level, like personal coaching, 360 reviews, getting founders feedback on how they're doing, exposing that team dynamic. Because you think about it, like if you coach the uh, LA Clippers, mm -hmm. you're going to focus on the psychology as yep. much as you're going to focus on the physical health. And our industry doesn't seem to do that. I think it's it's the personal check-in and the how are you doing yeah. that that is important, which is why I I really try to spend face-to-face -face time with my founders to sort of yeah. see how they're doing as opposed to just catching up on the phone or whatever because yeah. there are things and, and and you need to pay attention to those things as well. And obviously, when when your company is sort of growing well and this and I say you know what are your the issues that keep you up at night or whatever, you try and then figure out whether there is something personal there. But the problem is you need to pay attention. And it's not always easy to put attention when you have, you know, the time pressure that, that we, we have with so many things that we have to do every single day. Gotcha. Uh, listen, Jeff, we could go all night, but it's been a wonderful opportunity to spend time with you hearing about SoftTech VC. Huge congratulations on new fund, on 10 years, on great returns on San Francisco office. And, you know, I would love to reconvene in a year. I would love to do that. And, and, and let's, catch up. Yeah. let's do a check back and see how the market's evolved. Good, Good to see you. Good spending time with you. Thank you.